Well, we're in Luke 10, and uh, the messages that we've been having on Sunday mornings have been coming out of our devotional uh, reading and study during the week. Uh, just some things that uh, I read and I study, and I think, wow, that's, uh, that's good. We need to share that. I was just thinking that, uh, you know, sometimes I think that as Christ followers, uh, we lose sight of what it means to be a Christian. Or maybe we don't know. Uh, what does that mean? I call myself a Christian. What am I supposed to be doing? Uh, how does that make my life any different? And what we see here in Luke chapter 10, uh, we see presented three illustrations of what a Christian does. Uh, it really gives us a sense of purpose. Uh, it gives us a sense of meaning a sense of direction. Uh, as we wake up each day, we should be able to clearly know in our minds, okay, this is what it means for me today to be a Christian. So in Luke 10, he's going to point out three things that we're supposed to be doing as Christians. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him as we go out into the world. Uh, secondly, we're called in Luke 10 to be neighbors, meaning when we interact with people, uh, we <laughs> try not to look this family of hats. I see we're more biblical now. It's gone to uh, Evelyn and Richard has removed his head covering. Thank you. OK, uh, we're to be neighbors, meaning we imitate the Lord, especially in showing mercy. We'll see that second illustration. And then thirdly, but most importantly, we're supposed to be Worshippers. So there you have it. Uh, we are to be ambassadors. We're to be neighbors. We're to be worshipers. That's what a Christian does. Those are the three things. I guess you could put it this way, because in a minute we'll see we're in the harvest field. We're on the highway or even in the home. We are to find our greatest joy in doing the will of God and serving the Lord. So as we move through here, look at these three functions that we are to be doing uh, and see perhaps where uh, you are lacking or where you need to spend some time uh, improving. So in the first 24 verses, uh, we see the Lord sending out some representatives. Now, just a short time before this in Luke 9, he did send out the 12 disciples. This is different. We read this passage earlier. Uh, here he's sending out 70 disciples. Uh, 70 and he sends them out in pairs of two. And what is this? This is literally on the job training uh, that he's sending them out to to uh, prepare them and to prepare the places where he's going to be going. Uh, and there are some similarities, but there are some differences. Notice in Luke nine, he sent out 12 apostles. These 70 are not apostles. These are disciples. Uh, and there's a big difference. Uh, this is a. An officially commissioned ministry, short-term ministry trip that he's sending them out on. Uh, but these are not the official uh, pillars of the church, the apostles that we see. Uh, these are disciples. Then we see something else very interesting. Only Luke records this event. Matthew, Mark, and John don't record this event. Not sure why, except it was just Luke's perspective of what uh, is happening uh, in his relationship with the Lord and why the number 70, we don't know. Uh, maybe it has to do with, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses had 70 helpers. Uh, we don't know why 70. 
Um, but that's what the Lord chose. And notice that when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles for their on-the-job training in the chapter before, he told them to go only to the Jewish people. And now Jesus is telling these 70 to go out into all of Judea. And, of course, one of the things Luke is emphasizing in his whole book is the universal message of the gospel to all people, not just to the Jewish people. So in a symbolic way, this is the way that Jesus is saying, take my word or take the message of the gospel into every nation. So he sends them out to prepare the way. Now, notice in verse two, as we mentioned in our reading, that this was going to be a difficult calling. It says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So harvesting souls for the Lord will be hard work for his ambassadors. Even when there are a lot of people helping, you're still sent into a huge field trying to reap a harvest. Now notice something very interesting here, that instead of praying for an easier job, he told them to pray for what? More helpers. Isn't that interesting? You'd think he would have said, pray that it would go well. Pray that it wouldn't be so hard. But he didn't say that. He says, if you're going to represent me, if you're going to be my ambassador, if you're going out into the world to represent me as a witness, it's going to be hard and it's going to be dangerous. If he doesn't tell them, pray that it won't be so hard. Pray that it won't be so dangerous. And we'll see in a moment later on, the reason it's hard and dangerous is because once a person makes a commitment to follow the Lord, you are now a target of Satan and the whole realm of the demonic world. It's not going to get easier until we step into the presence of the Lord. But he says, what you do pray for is for more workers. Now, something else very interesting here. I got even more good news for you. All right. It's going to be hard. It's going to be dangerous. But notice who is supposed to be praying for more workers. Who's doing the praying? The workers. He tells those who are working for him, pray for more workers. So in other words, he's not talking to spectators. He's not saying you sit on the sidelines and pray for more help. And then you go out and get to work. Because quite frankly, there are a lot of Christians praying for somebody else to do a job that they themselves could do. Many Christians in the church look at their faith as some sort of spectator sport. They look at their faith as something, you know, we just gather on Sundays for worship and we have other people doing all the work. I do my part by just being here. Frankly, folks. Maybe this isn't going to spread Christmas cheer, but we'll get some cheer as we move through here. But being a Christian is not a spectator sport. Every believer is an ambassador for Christ. Every believer should be working for the Lord in some capacity. And by the way, where does the bulk of that work happen? In the local church. That's why the local church is plays such a prominent part in the scriptures. It's the place where believers come together to do the work of the Lord and also to display the gifts that the Lord has give, given them for the benefit of others. So he tells those who are working, pray for more workers. He just assumes that those who truly follow him 
are not treating their faith like a spectator sport. So I guess ask yourselves, what work are you doing for the Lord? And I'll say it, even though I know we're all thinking it, and sometimes I think it would be better if we just didn't mention it. We make time to do the things that we want to do. We make the time to do the things that are most important to us. And you think my words are harsh. We'll see some very harsh words from the Lord here in a moment. Uh, Sometimes he does have to rebuke his children and exhort his children. You say, why don't more Christians serve the Lord more? Because they don't want to. It's not rocket science. But we'll see, just as the Levite and the priest made excuses for not helping an injured person on the road, we do the same thing. We make excuses. But we'll see. I know you guys are looking at me like, oh, Pastor, this is not a Christmas message. Okay. Okay, just hang with me, okay? All right. You've got to take the coal out of your stocking first before we put in the good stuff, okay? So it's a difficult calling. It's a dangerous calling. We're told in verse 3 and verse 17 that they're going to be like lambs among wolves. But he tells them, you know what? As long as you rely on me and you rely on my strength and rely on my wisdom and my knowledge, you will be okay. A great theologian from ages past, he said, any man who takes Jesus Christ seriously becomes the target of the devil. And then he adds, but most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse his opposition. Yeah. He's going to, and then he goes on to say in verses 4 through 8, it's going to require discipline and faith for you to go out and be the Lord's ambassador. And there's going to be an urgency about the work that we need you to do. Because he says, you know, don't stop and greet people, he says. What does he mean by that? Well, the Eastern greeting was a very elaborate ceremony. What he was saying is there's such urgency to serving the Lord and representing the Lord and being a witness and being his ambassador. It's such an important thing. Don't get distracted by other things that aren't so important. That's why he says don't stop. You know, don't take extra money. Don't take extra clothing. Don't worry about all that. You're not going to a resort. You're going out to minister. Too many servants of the Lord get too distracted by too many things, he says. So don't take the time to do that. And then he says, when you reach somewhere where they accept you and they're listening to you and they want help, then stay there. Stay there and work for me if they accept you. And he says, it's okay to receive benefit from serving me. It's okay when the Lord's servant receives good gifts, housing, food, clothing, shelter. And don't move from place to place. If you reach a place where they accept you and they're, and they're taking care of you as you minister, stay there. But then he says, if people are rejecting you, then you need to move on. Because if they're rejecting you, that means they're rejecting me because you are my representative. So he sends them out. In verse 8, you see that they have this ministry of healing. In other places we see they were also casting out demons uh, and they were doing other things. And it's important to remember that for the 12 that were sent out in Luke 9 and the 70 that are sent out in Luke 10, that this was a specially commissioned Mission that he sent them on with these very special ministries. And nowhere in the Bible does God promise to duplicate these 
uh, miraculous things. In fact, the Lord in his resurrection afterward gives the church our mission, doesn't he? Our mission today is is to emphasize and to revolve around the proclamation of the message. It's to revolve around the message of the gospel. That salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ alone. He tells us that, doesn't he, in Matthew 28 and in Luke 24. We even give it a name, don't we? The Great Commission. Though for too many Christians, it's the Great Omission. It's the Great Commission. Then as we move into verses, oh, I don't know, like 9 through uh, 15. This seems like harsh language where he... Uh, curses these cities and he names three ancient cities that had already been judged by God uh, Sodom, Tyre and Sidon and he used these three cities to warn three other cities of his day right? Corazon, Bethsaida and Capernaum and why would he do that? and why would it be worse for them on judgment day than the cities that existed long before them in ancient times? because the cities of his day were receiving far more privileges than the ancient cities he mentioned from the Old Testament. The privilege of his presence. The privilege of his apostles being sent. And with more privilege came more responsibility. Basically saying, you have been given more from me in these three cities than the three cities from the ancient days. And so you will now be held even more responsible on Judgment Day. Now, I want to point something out. I love a good rabbit trail, but we don't have time. Verse 12, it says, we'll be more tolerable for you on Judgment Day. Do you know what that verse is saying? Sometimes we don't think of hell in this perspective. But there will be varying levels of intense suffering in hell. Every person will suffer, but not every person will suffer at the same intensity. That is frightening. More tolerable. Because the more that you have heard and rejected, the more judgment you bring on yourself. And by the way, for believers, for those of us who are followers of Christ, it will be a blessing to be in heaven, won't it? But the scriptures are clear that there will be varying levels of blessing and honor in heaven. And we shrug our shoulders and say, as long as I'm in heaven, that's okay with me. I don't know about you, but I'm a glory hog. I want to get, get. Right? There's different levels of honor and blessing in heaven. Based upon our devotion and our service and our obedience to the Lord. Can you imagine having a place of honor for all eternity? Of course, we won't have a sin nature. There'll be no struggle with taking the glory for ourselves. It'll all be for the Lord. But being rewarded, being honored for what we do for the Lord. Look at verses 17 through 24. We see some jubilation, don't we? The apostles come back. They're excited. Even the demons are subject to us in your name, they say. Remember, it's a special ministry. We're never commanded to that, to duplicate that today. But they were so excited. And Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I believe that's figurative language talking about uh, the demonic world. And over all power of the enemy, nothing will injure you. Then what's the first word in verse 20? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in all of these miracles and things that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that what your names are recorded in heaven. That is some awesome words right there. What is he saying? So there's three areas of rejoicing here. You could say that they had a joy of service in verses 17 through 19. Then you see the joy of salvation in verse 20. Then ultimately, more than anything, in verses 21 through 24, the joy of God's sovereignty. Joy of service, joy of salvation, joy of sovereignty. They were very careful to give God the glory, weren't they, for what happened. And they were seeing these individual victories of things they had done, casting out demons and such. But Jesus saw all of their activity as part of a war. The disciples were just seeing the battles. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I saw, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He was bringing up ages in the past when he was present in heaven on the day that Lucifer rebelled and was cast down out of heaven. We find that in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus was saying to them, and then he adds in verse 19, don't worry, I will always be with you. You have nothing to be afraid of. I was there on the day Satan was cast out and we were involved in a war. It's important that you stay close to me and you keep ministering, you keep working, you keep representing me as my ambassador. You have no need to be afraid. Verse 20 You should be rejoicing not so much about the power that I gave you or the miracles that I did through you. You should rejoice really in the greatest miracle of all, which is the salvation of a lost soul. And you may disagree with me, and that's okay. You know, you're allowed to disagree with your pastor. I know you never do it to my face. That's all right. I know know how it works. I get it. But this is my personal conviction. And if you, like I said, if you disagree with me, that's okay. I believe there's only one true miracle that occurs today. That is when a lost sinner embraces Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the miracle that we see today. Once again, that's my personal opinion. To see someone who has always rejected or refused Jesus Christ all of a sudden embrace him as Savior for eternal salvation, that is something that can only happen By an act of divine intervention. It's amazing. And the scriptures tell us that the angels rejoice in heaven every time someone accepts Christ as Lord and Savior. So Jesus is saying, you're doing miracles. That's great. You're using the power I gave you. That's great. But don't get sidetracked by the miraculous. Keep your minds focused on the most important thing. Because there was something else that they were told to do, that they did, that they were supposed to do first and primarily before doing any miracles. And that was preaching the word or preaching and teaching the gospel. And every passage where you see his apostles and disciples sent out to minister, we're told that they were sent out and they were preaching and they were teaching. And the miracles in the scriptures are always there to authenticate the message and the messenger. Many people saw many miracles 
and never embrace Jesus Christ. And sometimes we think, oh, if I could just see something spectacular from the Lord, or if other people could see something spectacular from the Lord, they would accept him. That's not true. That's not true. Romans chapter 1, you know it well. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verses 21 through 24, very interesting. Jesus, at that very moment, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And he said, notice here we see the Trinity, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. I praise you, O Father of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, he's not rejoicing and thanking God that people were blinded to the truth. What he's thanking his Heavenly Father for is that the understanding of the truth didn't depend on natural abilities or education. He was thanking his Heavenly Father that these simple people to whom the apostles were sent accepted and embraced the saving message of the gospel. And it is interesting, isn't it, that when the 12 and the 70 go out and they're preaching and they're healing and they're doing all these things, we don't ever see them with the wise and the learned, do we? Because those aren't the ones who humble themselves before God. They were always among the common people, the poor, the outcasts, the struggling. Those are the people that they minister to. Those are the people that sense their need for the gospel. So he's saying no need to be intimidated by the worldly learned or the worldly powerful because really they're just full of foolish speculations. Just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 through 14. Don't, you don't need to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 2 verses 10 through 14 talk about how it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand the scriptures when they're taught. It doesn't mean we'll understand everything perfectly. It means that if I understand anything from the Bible, that that is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes from within myself. It's interesting there in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that the Bible is actually a closed book for the unbeliever. The unbeliever, the one that has not embraced Jesus Christ, does not have the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't make any sense to him. In fact, it's foolishness foolishness so ambassadors witnesses in Christ's power within the guidelines of scripture we are all called to work and to represent him are we not second corinthians chapter five is just bluntly frank you are ambassadors for christ paul said it's not optional now a lot's going on in our transition government right now all these appointments and And everybody coming and going and who's going to be doing what job and who's going to be this ambassador and that ambassador. We have to remember this. We aren't deciding if or not we're an ambassador. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador. The question really is, what kind of ambassador are you? Are you a good and commendable ambassador, representative witness of Christ, or are you a poor one? It's not going to, you're not going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I, I, I never applied for that job. What are you talking about? I never went to Trump Tower. I didn't interview for anything. And Jesus said, the day you accepted me as Savior, you became my ambassador. 
What work are you doing for the Lord? Does the work of the Lord even have a priority in your life and in your heart? That's another good question. Number two. What is this? Oh, those are the three. Sorry about that. I didn't know I had that up there. Those that work for the Lord experience joy. Joy of service, which we mentioned, joy of salvation, and the joy of God's sovereignty. Sorry. Secondly, we see in verses 25 through 37, the second thing that we as Christians are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be neighbors because this is a well-known story, isn't it? What do, what do we call this story? The Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. So it was normal for Jewish rabbis to discuss theological matters in public. So this question comes up in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up, or a scribe, and put him to the test, trying to test Jesus, saying, See, this guy thought he was really smart. Uh, and in his unsaved ignorance, he didn't know. We know better, right? Oh, I'm going to outsmart Jesus. Watch this. Okay. Yeah. What used to say when I first got here, fail whale or whale fail. I don't know. You guys used to say that all the time, especially Mario. He said that all the time. Fail whale. I wasn't really sure what that meant, but this guy is setting himself up for failure. Sorry, Tim. Do you remember that? Doug? Setting ourselves up for failure here. So we see what? That it's a good question with a bad motive. He asked a good question, but with totally the wrong motive. Verse 26, he said to him, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? So Jesus, who was an expert at turning the tables, points him right back to the law. Not because the law could save him. Talking about the law of Moses. But he wanted him to spit back out the law, which he already knew because the answer was already in the word of God. Because what's the problem here? He gave, listen closely, he gave the right answer, but his, but he would not apply it personally to himself. Wow. Because he says in verse 27, the scribe answered, well, the law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Now just do this and you will live. But the man, look at verse 29, his heart is revealed. But wishing to justify himself, he thought he was going to be pretty smart. And he said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? So he's doing the old turn the table type thing. Okay, so he's asking, you know, define the terms, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? And then I'll apply this. We'll see in a moment Jesus answers him by giving him a story. But this scribe knew what the scriptures said but refused to, pers- to personally apply it to his own life. I'm so glad none of us do that. This is a scribe. This is a man who spent almost his entire life immersed in the scriptures. Knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out, but had not applied it in a saving way into his own life. Dancing around the truth his whole life, but never dancing into the light, I guess we could say. And once again, I'm so glad that none of us do that today. So Jesus starts telling him this story when he tries to, this guy tries to wiggle off the hook. Jesus tells him a story about a a man who... 
a Jewish man who takes this trip down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was 17 miles, but it was a 3,000 foot decline. It was very dangerous. It was one of the most traveled roads in all of Israel. The temple workers would travel this road all the time. The Romans would travel this road all the time. It was notoriously dangerous, filled with thieves and robbers. It's very interesting that if this road was used so much by the temple staff and temple employees, you think they would have made it safer for people. But um, as one author wrote, he said, I guess it's much easier to maintain a religious system than to improve the neighborhood. That's rough. That's rough, isn't it? That's just cold hearted rough. It's easier to be religious than to really help people. So most of us think that we can make excuses just like the priest in Levi. Look at verse 30. Jesus said a man. And I think this is a true story. And I think the people listening to him knew it was a true story because he doesn't say it's a parable. He just tells them this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and he went away and they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the street. Wow. Wow. The guy's half dead laying on the side of the road. And here comes a religious holy man and he crosses to the other side of the road. Wow. That, that is some coldness. That, that's really some coldness. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite who's also in the priestly family. When he came to the place and saw him, he too crossed to the other side of the road. Now, what's interesting is if Jesus had told a story of a Jew stopping to help a Samaritan, all Hades would have broken loose. Because, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hate each other's guts. But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't tell a story about a Jew helping a Samaritan. What is it? It's a story about a Samaritan helping a Jew who other Jews refuse to help. I guess we would say it this way. Burn. He burned him. I'm not going to tell you some story about how a Jew defiled himself to help some Samaritan. I'm going to tell you a story about a Samaritan who went over to help a person who hated his guts. Well, two of his own kind, two of his own people refused to help him. Because what's he trying to do? He's trying to define what mercy is. He's trying to define what mercy is. And number two, he's trying to let them see or help them see what his ministry was all about. Verse 33, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Key word in this story, circle, highlight, underline. And came to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two weeks worth of his pay and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of this man. And whatever more you spend, when I come back, I'll repay you. So Jesus says to this scribe, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell into a robber's hands? You see... The scribe's big question was, who's my neighbor? And I love this. But Jesus' question was, to whom can I be a neighbor? That scribe said, well, tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus said, no, the real question is, to whom can you be a neighbor? To whom can you show mercy? To whom can you show compassion? Because that's what I'm all about, Jesus says. 
You see, mercy needs no reason. You see, the priest and Levite, maybe they had excuses. Maybe they were just tired from serving the Lord, you know, at the temple. I mean, serving God, it's exhausting, you know, killing all those animals and taking care of all that blood. And we're there. They say, I was exhausted. You know, I can't be bothered by that. Or, hey, my religious beliefs, I can't dirty myself. I'm not allowed to associate with Samaritans. The Samaritan, he saw a need. He saw that he was equipped to meet that need. So he stepped in and met that need. That's compassion. That's mercy. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. Mercy didn't need any reason. And notice that the lawyer tried to keep it generic and broad. But Jesus got very specific, didn't he? And I think what he's saying here is for those who truly want to follow him and follow in his footsteps and mirror his ministry, we look for very specific practical ways that we can show mercy and compassion and help others. It's not some broad, general type of of thing where we gather together and, and we figure out how can we show mercy and compassion. He's saying, hey, you, you know, Victor or Pauline, you know, or Nancy or Mark or, you know, when you're out and about doing your daily thing at work or school, whatever. Hey, I may give you an opportunity that only you can meet. Only you are here right now. Only you specifically could meet this need right now. I, I think that's why Jesus got very specific here. Let's put this. Here's a great story about D.L. Moody. Do you know who D.L. Moody is? Once again, Christian biography. If you don't know who D.L. Moody is, you Google that name and you read about him. One of the great preachers in America, in Chicago. So he tells this story. And if you're really into music, do you know who Ira Sankey is? Does that ring a bell? He's a great... Yeah, you guys know. Oh, okay. Uh, he was a great hymn and songwriter who traveled with D.L. Moody. He was his worship leader. We have Joey Sankey. And he had uh, Ira Sankey. So, and Moody lived in the mid to late uh, 1800s and ministered in Chicago to thousands. In fact, we have Moody Bible Institute in Chicago today named after him. So he told his worship leader, Iris Sankey, to meet him at six o'clock one evening on a street corner. And so Sankey arrives and Moody puts him up on a box and he says, just start singing. And before long, a huge crowd gathered around and then Moody uh, spoke briefly and he told the crowd, he invited the crowd to come back to the opera house where they were holding this huge uh, Bible conference that night. So he brought all these people into the opera house and he was teaching them and they were singing and having a service. Well, then he noticed people gathering out in the back and Moody was famous for zingers, zingers to other Christians to try to motivate them. And so he announced to the crowd, uh, he said, uh, we have to end our service now because uh, the Bible conference is gathering because they're going to meet to talk about how to help spiritually hungry people. Ouch. When he had just gone out on the street and brought all these people in and he's saying, uh, you know, Not all committees are committed, is really what he's saying. They're going to gather in here and talk about how to help people uh, when he just went out and did it himself. I think one of the lessons, important lessons we see uh, from this story, verse 37, the scribe said to him, the one who showed mercy toward him was his neighbor. And then Jesus said to him, and the language literally reads, go and keep doing the same thing. 
keep doing. That should be a, a constant attitude of ours, looking for opportunities to show mercy and compassion. I think one of the points Jesus is making here is to help us to think not only of the high cost of caring, but to think that it is a far more costly thing not to care. Losing out on blessings, losing out on opportunity to serve the Lord, to imitate the Lord, to show mercy and compassion on people just like he did. To the thieves, this Jew who was traveling was simply just a victim to exploit and attack. To the priest in the Levite, he was just a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and to help, so he took care of him. And Jesus said, you should go and do the same thing. Lastly, but most importantly, a third illustration. So as Christians, three things we should do as Christians. Ambassadors to represent the Lord, neighbors to imitate the Lord, especially in his mercy. And lastly, we should be worshipers who are listening to the Lord. But I think this is the most important thing, even though it's put third in the chapter. Because at the heart of everything we do in the Christian life is worship. It's good to be a busy ambassador to take the message of the gospel to lost people. It's essential to be merciful to the Samaritans in our lives. But before we can represent Christ as we should or imitate him in our ministry, we have to spend time with him to learn from him. So here we see Martha and Mary, don't we? So Jesus is traveling along and they come into a village and there's a, a, a woman named Martha and her sister Mary Uh, And Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet. And what's interesting about this Mary, we see her three times in the Gospels. And all three times, she's at the feet of Jesus, learning and listening. Very interesting. And all three times, there's some sort of fragrance involved. I thought that was interesting because in Luke 10 here, she's cooking. She's helping her sister at first cooking, so you have the fragrance of food. In John chapter 11... Her brother died, who Jesus would raise from the dead. Who was that? Lazarus. And the scripture says we can't open the tomb because by now there's a stench. He stinks. I like the King James. He stinketh. Uh, So there's the the fragrance of death. You have the fragrance of food, the fragrance of death. And then in John 12, she breaks open a jar of very expensive perfume. And so you have the fragrance of perfume. Always at the feet of Jesus, her life always involves some sort of fragrance. So you have Martha Martha and Mary in the kitchen together. Then when the Lord arrives, Mary leaves the kitchen because in verse uh, 40, Martha's upset. Lord, don't you care that my sister has now left me to do all the serving by myself? Then tell her to help me. We might be tempted to think it's an either-or thing. Either we work for the Lord or we commune with the Lord. I don't think so. I think what we see here is the blessedness of being balanced. Working for the Lord, but understanding to be an effective worker for the Lord, we have to make sure that we're spending time with the Lord. In other words, it's not so much what we do for Christ as what we do with Christ. We have to do with Christ before we can be any good for Christ. We have to sit at his feet. We have to learn from him. We have to commune with him. And I'll tell you, there's nothing as damaging to the Christian life as trying to work for Christ without taking the time to commune with him. 
It's like running on an empty tank. Sometimes I fear that in all of our busyness, maybe we're ignoring the Lord. You see, because Martha's problem wasn't that she had too much work to do, but that she had allowed her work to distract her and pull her apart in different directions. Because we might be tempted to say, well, she shouldn't be in the kitchen. Well, that's not true. Because later, in a chapter 12, I think we see her working again, preparing food and serving. But it, it's commended at that time. So we assume she had learned something. The key that Jesus is saying to these ladies, look at verse 41. The key is about having the right priorities. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And you know what that spells, right? Joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. See, she didn't have balance in her life. She didn't have her priorities set. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You see, Martha was busy, but not blessed. Because she allowed all of the business of life and her ministry and her work for the Lord to keep her from taking the time to spend devotional time with the Lord. Now, I want to tell you something that may hurt your feelings, but it's a sanctified hurt, I hope. So often in my pastoral ministry, people come to me with serious problems. And one of the first things I ask them is, tell me about your devotional life with the Lord. And usually I'll get a blank stare or a head drop or maybe the tears will start to come. It's because, well, pastor, I really don't have a devotional life. I stopped reading my Bible a long time ago and my church involvement and attendance has been spotty. And I only pray on Sundays. Wednesdays if I go to Bible study. You know, and is it any wonder that we have the problems we have when we don't have the devotional life with the Lord that we need to sustain us in the daily tasks? Then in John 12, 1 and 2, as I mentioned, we see Martha. We think she learned her lesson because she was preparing a feast for Jesus, for the twelve, for her brother and sister. Fifteen people. And not a word of complaint is recorded. So think about those three categories. Think about those three things that you are supposed to be doing as a Christian. You are an ambassador representing Christ, working on his behalf. How are you doing in that area? How is your witness for Christ? Where are you working for Christ? Are you just a spectator or are you a laborer, especially in the local church? Secondly, what about being a good neighbor, imitating Christ, showing mercy and compassion? And specifically, when the Lord gives you an opportunity right in front of you that no one else could meet. It could be the littlest of things. There was an elderly couple putting their groceries into the car at the grocery and they were struggling so I offered this just happened last week I said would you like me to put that cart away for you oh yes that's that's wonderful that's wonderful being able to have a little conversation with them and wishing them Merry Christmas and uh, taking advantage of opportunities to show mercy because you're right there in the moment thirdly 
And most importantly, you are a worshiper. How much time are you dedicating to listening to Christ? And when I say listen to Christ, I mean the Lord speaks through the scriptures. I think there's a lot of bad counsel out there today about how do we hear the voice of the Lord? We hear the voice of the Lord in the written word of the scriptures. You know, in Second Peter chapter 1, in Luke 9 is the transfiguration. Go to First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1. And in closing, let's look at this. Luke chapter 9 mentions the transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain and Jesus revealed some of his glory to them. A true miracle. Something spectacular. But it's interesting. And then in Luke 10, we see the things we've just read about. But look what Peter says about perhaps the greatest miracle ever seen by human eyes. In verse 16 of Second Peter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we twelve were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, actually, we three were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we heard an utterance from heaven that was made to him by the majestic glory. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's talking about the transfiguration. And we ourselves, Peter, James and John, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, verse 19. But we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention to it like it was a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So he says we have the written word that's more sure, more sure than what? More sure than the miracle of the transfiguration that he had just mentioned. What Peter is saying is miracles are great, but the written word of God is the greatest. We don't have to long and pine for miraculous things when we have the word of God right here for us. So when it comes to worshiping God, we do that through the word. So the question is, how much are you devoting yourself to learning at the feet of Jesus through the scriptures? So think about those three categories over this next week. Do some prayer. Let the Lord search your hearts. Maybe identify some ways you can strengthen one of those areas where you see some weakness. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes the things that you speak to us are difficult. Not so difficult to understand, but difficult to accept uh, because we see where we fall short. But we know that it's out of love that you speak to us about things. And I think many of us have a heart to serve you and we want to work for you. We want to be your ambassador and, and to be a neighbor to the Samaritans in our lives. But we're, uh, we try to do that on an empty tank sometimes because we don't spend enough time with you each day. And I think some of us struggle. We don't, we're missing kind of a dynamic Christian life. Uh, and quite frankly, we need to be honest with ourselves. The dynamic of our Christian life is directly related to the time we spend in the Word of God. 
So, Father, I pray that you convict our hearts, that you would gently rebuke us and exhort us to look at these three areas. And that each day we would realize this is what we're supposed to do. We're to be ambassadors, we're to be neighbors, and we're to be worshipers. And that really sets the agenda for our day, whether we're going to work, whether we're going to school, whether we're just out and about running around. These are the three things that we should be doing as your people. So may we put that in front of our eyes. May it give us clarity. May it give us purpose. May it give us meaning. Uh, May it give us hope. Uh, Father, increase our love for you. And may it be very specific, as was the story of the Good Samaritan. May we look for those opportunities. May we not just sit around and wait to be served. May we not treat our Christian life like a spectator sport. But may we get up, get out on the field, and get involved. Working for you, ministering for you, finding a place in the church where we can help, where we can serve. Because you've told us to do that. Father, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your mercy and your compassion in our lives. Thank you for being patient and gentle with us as we struggle. Thank you for understanding our weaknesses. Thank you for removing all fear and doing all that because of the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we leave here rejoicing, giving you the glory for every good thing. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Don't forget, we have a budget meeting uh, across the way in the classroom.